Hi, welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. My name is Jillian and we're so glad you're joining us. Today, Pastor John Wong continues through our series, Life in His Name, with a message entitled, Before Abraham Was, I Am. Jesus' words matter to his disciples. His words nourish, they teach, they command, and set the course of thought, behavior, and actions for all who hold them closely. To remain in his word is not merely the message of Jesus, but also his person and work. Real belief in Jesus is not just intellectual. It is coming into the life of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. I've entitled this morning's message as Before Abraham Was, I Am. Now, this may seem like a strange title to you, especially if you're new to the Bible. Now, some hear the words Before Abraham Was, and they might be asking him or herself, who is Abraham? Now, for those of us that grew up in church, most of us remember the song, Father Abraham, right? Yes, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Really, I'm the only one that knows this? I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And we go from right arm to left arm to right foot to left foot, right? Now, I remember singing this song as a child and being completely, utterly perplexed and confused about it as I sang. Because I would be thinking, how am I related to Abraham Lincoln. The whole time I was singing that song, I thought we were singing about the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. And I had no idea how I was related to that president, especially as a Korean. It wasn't until later that I discovered that this Abraham that we were singing about wasn't Abraham Lincoln, but it was Abraham, the Hebrew father of the 12 tribes of Israel and the spiritual father of everyone who believes in Jesus the Messiah. In fact, this Abraham is a noteworthy character in the Bible. The Bible refers to Abraham by name over 280 times. In fact, in the book of Genesis alone, 14 chapters are dedicated to telling his life story. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, Isaiah 41, 8, and James 2, 23, Abraham is called the friend of God. Wow. And in Galatians 3.9, Paul calls him the man of faith. So when we talk about this Abraham, he is a man who is both honored and respected by Jews and Christians alike. Before Abraham was, then I am. And so that may cause some of you, some of us, to be curious about how the words I am in all caps fit into this sermon title, Before Abraham Was, I Am. Now, it's important for us to keep in mind that I am here in all caps is God's name. Do you remember the story of when Moses was in God's presence there in the desert at the burning bush, and God had commanded Moses to go back to Egypt because he wanted to set his people free? And there in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we read, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. In fact, God's name, Yahweh. Yahweh is derived from the Hebrew words translated, I am who I am, or in short, I am. And so when God claims to be I am, Yahweh, 
He is revealing himself as the self-existent, eternal, always present, self-sufficient God. And here's the radical thing about John chapter 8. In this chapter, Jesus of Nazareth claims to be I am. Wow. In fact, this claim of being I am is a repeated theme in the gospel of John. In fact, in this gospel, he claims, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And Jesus claiming to be Yahweh Listen, the religious Jews who heard him understood it that way. There was no mistake. There was no confusion. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, or in other words, I am Yahweh. Now, as we spend time this morning in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59, we need to understand this moment through this gospel's purpose statement. Now, we've been re repeating this purpose statement every week, but I want to read this purpose statement in John 20, verses 30 and 31 to you in the New Living Translation. It says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So these verses that we read together, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59, listen, they were written to teach us something about Jesus. They were written to direct our attention to Jesus. They were written to invite us to believe in Jesus. They were written so that we can have life in the name of Jesus. So let's dive into it, and let's begin with this scene. The overview of John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59, it begins with verses 31 and 32. And here in these two verses, Jesus described his true disciples. Now, we see in verse 31 that this story begins with the words, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said. Now, we discover who this group was in the previous verse. In verse 30, we read, even as he, that's Jesus spoke, many believed in him. Now, you remember last week, we saw there in John chapter 8 that Jesus gave a discourse during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was during this feast that Jesus made this radical claim in chapter 8, verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those are radical words, and that's a radical claim for anyone to claim. And as Jesus gave his discourse there during the Feast of Tabernacles, we see that many Jews believed in him. Now, this crowd of Jews that heard Jesus speak and they believed in him, we need to keep in mind that this was a mixed crowd. Yes, there were people that put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and yes, there were other people who claimed to believe. But we have to remember that there was that group, that category of people that their believing did not go deeper than a mere superficial faith in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And you remember Jesus encountered this kind of belief before, right? Back in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Remember when Jesus was in Jerusalem and we read that during that Passover festival that many people saw the signs he was performing, listen, and believed in his name. Now that sounds exciting, right? There's all these people that are saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I'm going to follow Jesus now. But then it goes on, but Jesus 
would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. We see this again in John chapter six, verse 66. We read, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Listen, in these two accounts, we see that they demonstrate a superficial belief in Jesus. This is a belief that does not result in a person yielding to the authority of King Jesus. But instead, these are people who want Jesus to conform to his or her personal wants and wills. Yeah, I'll believe in Jesus as long as Jesus does for me what I want him to do for me. But I don't want a king. I don't want a king that demands that I yield my life to him, that I follow him. I want a Jesus that conforms to my will and my wants. Now, because there were this kind of people in the crowd, Jesus then responded to their believing with these words. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I want you to see that this statement is designed to distinguish between superficial and substantial belief in Jesus. In this statement, Jesus describes who his true disciples are. He describes his true believers. He describes his true followers. In fact, the NIV translates these Greek words, if you hold to my teaching... But a better translation would be, if you abide in my words. That word abide is a key word in John's gospel. It means to be at home in. It means to remain or continue in. So what Jesus is telling us, what Jesus is telling this crowd that's saying, hey, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in you. I believe in you. He's saying that his true disciples are those who make themselves at home in and they remain in Jesus' life-giving, life-altering words. Because Jesus' words matter to Jesus' disciples. The words of Jesus, they nourish the disciples of Jesus. They teach the disciples of Jesus. They command the disciples of Jesus. And they set the course of thought, behavior, and actions for the disciples of Jesus. So this statement causes us to ask the question, where do we stand in this? How do I relate to the words of King Jesus? Now, some people hear those words and they think, well, I read my Bible every day. I keep at it. I've got a calendar and I'm reading through the scriptures. But you need to understand that as important and as necessary as that is, Jesus is speaking more than just about reading through the Bible every day. Jesus is talking about living in his word. The Pharisees read through the Bible, and Jesus said they don't have eternal life. It's living in the words of Jesus. So whoever abides in my word are truly my disciples. But there is something more for us to see here than just the words of Jesus. There is something more than just being at home in the words of Jesus because Jesus here wants us to understand that the disciples of Jesus are those that are at home in and they remain in the word himself. Now, in the Zondervan exegetical commentary on John's gospel, Edward W. Clink III made this comment. He said, quote, the use of the significant term word or logos in the Greek 
a term made foundational to the person of Christ in the prologue, that's talking about chapter one, verses one through 18, demands that we not limit the intention the intentionally robust impression it is expected to make upon the reader. In other words, don't miss the word logos showing up here. He says, to remain in my word is not merely the message of Jesus, but also his person and work. When Jesus says, abide in my word, it could also be understood as abide in the word, Jesus himself. Because Jesus' true disciples, they derive eternal life from Jesus himself. Jesus' true disciples, they remain living in Jesus himself, the Messiah, the Son of God. And guys, this is what sets Christianity apart from all the other major religions in the world. If we want to talk about the uniqueness of Christianity, this is a big one. You know, without Muhammad, Islam continues, right? Islam continues through the teachings of Muhammad. Without Buddha, Buddhism continues through his teaching. Without Confucius, Confucianism continues through his teachings. But listen, without Jesus the Messiah, Christianity cannot exist. Because Christianity lives in the person of the risen, living Jesus, not merely his teachings. If you think that Christianity is just about a set of Christian rules and regulations and you don't understand Christianity, there is no Christianity without Jesus. So real belief in Jesus is not just intellectual. Real belief in Jesus is coming into the life of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and remaining in him as well as remaining in his words. The second thing that we see from the verses here in this story is in verses 33 through 57. In verses 33 through 57, we see that the Jews were claiming to be Abraham's descendants, and because they were that, they believed they were God's children. But we see in this passage that Jesus pushed back on this claim, right? He pushed back by exposing their real spiritual condition, and that was that they were not practicing the way of righteous Abraham as his true children, but rather they were practicing the way of the devil as his spiritual children. That is a radical statement to make. The Ab the people of, the, uh, of Abraham were claiming to be God's children. We are Abraham's descendants, but they weren't practicing the way of Abraham. Listen, for them, lineage and pedigree is what connected them to Abraham and is what caused them to think that they were God's children. But lineage and pedigree cannot make anyone a child of God. Only faith in Jesus the Messiah can do that. This is what John the Baptizer proclaimed, right? In Luke 3, 8, speaking to the Jews, he said, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, oh, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. John the Apostle emphasized this in John 1, verses 12 and 13. When he said to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. In other words, just because you are an American, 
Or just because you grew up in a Christian home does not mean that you are automatically a child of God. Lineage and pedigree cannot do that for us. Only faith in the person of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, can do that. They were not living according to the way of righteous Abraham. Now, Abraham's life shows us how to possess God's righteousness and how to practice righteous living before God. And if there are two things I want us to remember today about righteous Abraham is this. Number one, righteous Abraham trusted God and believed God's word. And it was because of this that God counted Abraham righteous. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and he, that's God, credited it to him as righteousness. Now, commenting on Genesis 15, 6, the apostle Paul wrote in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5, quote, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had been made acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about, but that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And then later, Paul continues in Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7, he said, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. Religion tells us that we have to work for and earn God's righteousness. You know, a good way to remember what righteousness is is to hyphenate the word. Righteousness is right standingness. It's being in the right before God. And we think that as long as I keep up with all the good moral commands of the laws of Moses, then I'm going to be in the right before God. No. The law can't do that for you. Only faith in Jesus the Messiah can do that. And Abraham shows us the pathway to that righteousness when he believed God and God said, all right, Abraham, you are righteous. But then we see that righteous Abraham did something. The Bible tells us that righteous Abraham looked to God's provision in Messiah. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, we saw from the scripture reading, right, that Jesus was making a very clear contrast between the Jews and Abraham. Even though the Jews were claiming to be Abraham's people, the children of God, Jesus is saying, you're nothing like him. And one of the areas where they were nothing like him is that unlike righteous Abraham, these religious Jews were not celebrating in Jesus the Messiah. They hated him. They opposed him. So here's the question. When did Abraham, who lived thousands of years before Jesus the Messiah come into the world, when did righteous Abraham rejoice with gladness at the thought of seeing Jesus the Messiah? That's a great question. Now, I believe that one of the clearest moments where Abraham saw and rejoiced in The coming of Jesus the Messiah, it is found in Genesis 22. You remember the story in Genesis 22 when God told Abraham, hey, I want you to take your son, your only son that you love, Isaac, and I want you to offer him to me on this mountain, Mount Moriah. 
And we know the story that as Abraham and Isaac were going up the mountain, that Isaac carrying the wood and Abraham holding the fire, Isaac asked the question, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And you remember in Genesis 22, verse 8, Abraham said something that we look back with hindsight and we realize he said this by faith. He said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, Abraham had already confessed his faith that no matter what happened on that mountain, he knew he was coming back down the mountain with Isaac. In the story of Genesis 22, we read that Abraham told his servants, hey, wait here until Isaac and I, we come back together. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that Abraham, by faith, believed that God would even raise Isaac from the dead because God made a promise to Abraham that through Isaac, many descendants would come. And so whatever the sacrifice was going to look like, he knew that there was still a future sacrifice coming. And so throughout Old Testament history, the question has been, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Because Abraham said the lamb was going to be provided. And it wasn't until John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He rejoiced to see the day of the Messiah who would be the Lamb of God that would deal with the sin problem. But Abraham also called the place where they were on that mountain, the Lord will provide. And so in Genesis twenty-two fourteen, 14, it says, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Not only did Abraham announce that the Lamb was going to be provided by God himself, but it would happen on that very mountain where Isaac and Abraham was standing on Mount Moriah. Did you know that Golgotha or Calvary is a part of Mount Moriah? It was there at Golgotha that the lamb that was provided, Jesus died that sacrificial death in your place, in mine, for you and for me. And then God said this, to Abraham. In that same chapter in Genesis 22, verse 18, God promised through your offspring, singular, not offsprings, plural, singular, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And then later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul the apostle, he points out that the word offspring is singular because he's not talking about the Jewish people, the many descendants, but about the Messiah himself. Because it's in Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles will receive and experience all the blessings of God's salvation. And listen, this includes you and me. And Abraham saw that. He understood the message on Mount Moriah and he celebrated the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. You see, the Jews, they celebrated Abraham, but they did not celebrate with Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. So instead of being on the way of righteous Abraham, Jesus then says the most shocking thing. And it's really shocking when it's spoken to religious people who think they're the children of God. He tells them that they are actually on the way of the devil. You see, these Jews were under the spiritual control of the devil. And this was evident in their rejection, their hatred, and their opposition against Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. You see, they boasted in being God's children through Abraham, but were behaving like the devil's children. 
In John chapter 8, verses 44 and 45, Jesus said to them, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies, yet because I tell the truth, you do not Believe me. And then we come to this third part of the story here in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. And that is in verses 58 and 59, Jesus claims to be Yahweh, the one greater than Abraham. In verse 58, Jesus declared, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Man, that causes chills to go up and down my spine. Remember, this is a young 30-something carpenter from Nazareth. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. I want you to see how the Jews reacted to Jesus' claim here. In verse 59, we read, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. You see, the Jews knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. They understood him to be claiming to be Yahweh, I am God. There's no confusion here. There's no great misunderstanding. Jesus is claiming to be the God-man, and this is a repeated theme in John's gospel. In fact, when we started the series, we began in John chapter 1, verse 1, where we were introduced to God the Son, who became human, and his name is Jesus. And we read in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we see how God became human in verse 14. It says, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In John chapter 10, we'll get there in a few weeks. We're going to see a moment with Jesus and the Jews where Jesus declares, I and the Father are one. He's saying we are one in essence, and the Jews responded to this. He said, you, Jesus, a mere man, claim to be God. I don't know what your opinion of Jesus is this morning, but let me share with you that the biblical Jesus is more than just a good man. The biblical Jesus is more than just a moral teacher. He's more than just a religious prophet. Jesus of Nazareth is the God-man. He is fully God, fully human, and fully both at the same time. And any belief about Jesus of Nazareth that makes him less than God is a wrong belief about him. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, is the I Am. Amen? Amen. And being the God-man, Jesus the Messiah is greater than Abraham. And here's the deal. Abraham celebrated Jesus the Messiah, and these Jews weren't doing that. Because even though they were connected by lineage and pedigree, they were not the true children of Abraham because they were not trusting with a full heart of allegiance to King Jesus like Abraham did. But that's the story. But I want us to leave here with the gospel. The gospel that's here in John chapter 8 Verses 31 through 59, gospel means good news. So I hope you're ready for some good news in a world filled with bad news. 
So here's the good news that we have in the story. Having looked at the scene, I want us to listen now to the gospel found in these verses. Let's turn our attention to two sets of truths that are here in this passage. And the first is in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, and then verse 36, we see from bondage to freedom. From bondage to freedom. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, We read, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And in verse 36, we read, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The theme of these two statements is freedom, spiritual freedom. Now, the Bible is very clear about this. Since the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, everyone is held in spiritual bondage to sin. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. We sin because we are sinners. And that's why Jesus said in John 8, 34, very truly I tell you, Everyone who sins, or as the New English translation puts it, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so we better understand what we mean by sin. Sin is the attitude and action of rejecting God and rebelling against him. It is rejecting God as being the central, most important, most treasured person in our lives. And it's replacing God with other somethings or someones. I I just love how John Piper defines sin. Listen to this. He said, quote, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. And I don't need to say much to make a case for the sinfulness of people. And yet, even with all the evidence against us, we like to think better of ourselves, don't we? That's part of the fallenness in human nature. In fact, we see this with the Jews. When Jesus said the truth will set you free, I want you to see how the Jews responded. They said in verse 33, hey, listen, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of of, of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? These guys weren't stupid. Historically, these Jews knew Israel's long history of being under the control of other nations. They knew their history under the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks, and at that time, under the Romans. So what they meant by not being slaves is that even though the people of Israel were the physical slaves to these nations, they did not think of themselves as spiritual slaves to them. You see, they considered themselves as spiritually right before God, as Abraham's descendants, as God's covenant people, but they were blind. They could not see the reality of their own sinfulness. And that was evident in their devil-like behavior. We see in John 8, 37 through 39, that they were liars and murderers, and they wanted to kill Jesus, the Messiah. 
They were behaving like the children of the devil, but they had convinced themselves that they were the children of God. They could not see their need to be rescued from sin by Jesus the Messiah because they were blinded by their own self-righteousness. You know, self-righteousness blinds us from seeing the truth about ourselves, and it blinds us from seeing the truth about our need for Christ to rescue us from sin. Bruce Milne, he wrote, quote, these verses in John 8, 34 through 47 represent a damning indictment of, of human nature. As Reinhold Niebuhr remarked a generation ago, no amount of contrary evidence seems to disturb humanity's good opinion of itself. But the evidence is there on every hand in our own period from the horrors of Auschwitz and a thousand other wartime hells through the killing fields of Cambodia and the wasted millions of Stalin's gulag besides the daily toll of gratuitous violence, rape, abuse, abortion, torture, and murder in every corner of the globe, Jesus' view of human nature in these verses has been and continues to be abundantly verified in experience. And yet, what does everybody want to think about themselves? We're good. Something wrong with us. We don't need Jesus. John the Apostle put it this way. In 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, he says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. You see, Jesus sets us free by first opening the eyes of our hearts with God's truth. That's why he says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth Jesus is referring to are his words. If you abide in my words, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth. And the reason why the words of Jesus are important is because the those words reveal the truth about God and us. Again, let me quote from Edward Klink III. He said, truth is not only a philosophical concept, but is also relational, denoting true knowledge of God. The truth to be known is that Jesus is the saving mission of God, the one through whom grace and truth have come, who is the authoritative expression of the Father and his love for the world. In short, the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is this truth that reveals the truth about God in us? What does the gospel say? What is it that we need to hear that will set us free? It's this. God is holy, and we are sinners separated from him. God is righteous, and we are sinners needing to be made right with him. God is love. And he demonstrated his love for us by sending God the Son into the world as the sacrifice for sin and ransom for our redemption. God is powerful. And he displayed it in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he continues to display it in the transformation of all who believe and receive in Jesus as Savior and King. God is merciful. And those who come to Jesus by faith receive his forgiveness from all sin. And God is gracious. And by his grace, we have a new nature, a new life, a new identity, a new family, a new future, and a forever relationship with God. That's gospel truth. And the gospel truth guarantees real freedom to all those who believe in it, receive it, and remain in it. But remember what we said earlier, that in these words, the truth is not only the words of Jesus, but Jesus himself. Listen, 
Receiving salvation is not putting your faith in the teachings of Jesus. It's putting the full weight of your trust, your allegiance in the person of Jesus himself. Jesus claimed in John 14, 6 to be the truth. Jesus himself is the answer to Pontius Pilate's question, what is truth? Jesus is the truth. Real freedom belongs to those who not only remain in Jesus' teachings, but remain in Jesus himself. And that's why we see that he is the source for real freedom from the bondage of sin. He claimed, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He is the truth, and he is the Son. By claiming to be the son, Jesus is claiming to be the God who has the power to set people free from the power and the prison of sin. In John 5.18, we read that Jesus was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that's why we read, these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And so Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. I love those words. The Christian Standard Bible translates it as, you really will be free. The New English translation says, you will be really free. The New Living Translation says, you are truly free. And the message says, you are free through and through. Jesus is the one who sets us free from the dominion of sin. He is setting us free from indwelling sin. And he will set us free from the presence of sin. If the Son sets you free, You will be free indeed. Are you free indeed today? One more thing and we're done. Not only do we see Jesus setting us free from bondage and bringing us into freedom, but also in John 8, 51, we see that he brings us from death to life. Jesus said in verse 51, very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. In other words, you have to respond to the gospel. Don't just hear it. Do something about it. And this brings us freedom, not only from sin, but also from death, because sin not only enslaves, but it kills. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is that that is a forever ongoing death in an existence separated from God and excluded from all that is life-giving and good. It is darkness, not light. It is death, not life. And the full reality of death will be experienced in the future. But listen, without God... People can feel parts of this death in their own lifeless souls and empty hearts today, right? Maybe you're feeling that death inside of you. And that's why Jesus is not only the truth, but in John 14, 6, he also claims to be the life. Jesus, the truth, sets us free from sin, and Jesus, the life, sets us free from forever death. John 5, 24, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but listen, but has crossed over from death to life. And no one has ever said stuff like Jesus. Listen, Jesus not only delivers us from death, but he also brings us into eternal life. And this is a forever life, and this continues beyond the grave. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Then he asked this question, do you believe this? But not only is it a forever life, it's a full life. 
And this full life starts the moment you believe and receive Jesus as your Savior and King. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The New King James says, more abundantly. You know, it's been said that there are only two kinds of people in the world today. Those who are merely existing, you take up space and you take up air, and those who are truly living. Where do you fit? Which one are you today? Can I encourage you, let's remember that there is life in his name. Have you been set free from sin? Jesus can do that for you today. Do you know that, you're, that you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life? Not only because you're hoping that that's waiting for you beyond the grave, but because you're already tasting it right now. By tasting eternal life now, it gives you the assurance that you have eternal life after the grave. Are you tasting it now? And it's all wrapped up in Jesus. At this moment, the worship team's gonna come up and lead us into our response time. And as we do every week, the communion elements are set before us. And as we come to the table, I wanna encourage you, if you haven't already, come and believe the gospel. Receive Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as your Savior and King. He's not looking for eloquence of speech. He just wants a heart that is humble and says, Jesus, I need you and I want you. Come doing that. And he'll set you free from sin and death. And for all of us, as we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, let's remember what Jesus did for us on the cross Let's remember that Jesus rose again from the dead, that Christianity is not a dead historical religion. It's all about life because Jesus is alive. And let's celebrate life in his name. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who is the truth in life. And Lord, we thank you that that we have this opportunity now to respond to the things that you have spoken to us through your word. And Lord, I pray for all of us, may the written word bring us to the true living word, the Lord Jesus, and may we leave altered, transformed, completely new in Christ. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.